We've been on this journey now for several weeks walking through this great letter, the letter of Philippians. If you remember, that letter is written by the Apostle Paul when he's in prison. He writes to the church in Philippi, one of the churches that he started on his missionary journey. And it's a letter that is just filled with how do we have joy? How do we rejoice in circumstances? Chapter 1, Paul lays out the idea that circumstances rob us of our joy. You stop and think about it. A health circumstance comes up. A financial circumstance comes up. uh, A relational circumstance comes up. What happens many times is all the joy is just sucked out of life. Sometimes it's just things like a a flat tire. That's a circumstance. Uh, Joy can be sucked out of your life. And so Paul says the answer to this is to live with what is known as the single mind. uh, Philippians 1.21, he said, For me to live is what? Is Christ... To die is gain. Paul's like, that's how I live my life. And even though I'm going through all kinds of craziness and junk, I'm going to live for Christ. And no matter what comes my way, hey, I'm going to be good with it. I'm going to be okay with it. I'm still going to have joy because living his life for Christ. If not, I die, I'm going to get God. In other words, he's like, I put God first. I put God first. Chapter 2, he was talking about people and how people can rob us of our joy. And, and all of us can sit here right now and say, yeah, when I get around, maybe it's the coworker, maybe it's the family member, maybe it's the family reunion, maybe it's a neighbor. When I get around that person, they drive me crazy and joy's just kind of taken out of your tank. Your, your joy tank just gets emptied really fast. And Paul's like, how do you do that? Well, how do you have joy? You have a submissive mind. Remember the key verse was uh, chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Paul's like, listen, you you put others before yourself. You drop selfishness. In chapter 1 and chapter 2 is a great explanation and summary and a how-to to live out the greatest commandment, a loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. You read chapters 1 and 2, and you go, okay, I'm getting some of this. Now Paul, though, as we turn to Philippians chapter 3, kind of says, well, let's tackle another area. Let's consider another thing that takes joy out of us. And what is it? Stuff, things of life, things that get in our way. Let me give you a quick overview of of chapter 3. In verses 1 through 11, Paul's going to look at his past. And he's looking at his past. He says, listen, I'm an accountant. I I take stock. I kind of count the numbers. He says, I count. And he says, now I'm learning some new values for life. In verses 12 through 16, we're going to see how Paul Paul says, here's the present. And he talks about, and makes a comparison of being an athlete. And he says, I press on. He's he's discovering a new vigor, like in the middle of this stuff and things that are going on. I'm going to press on through it. And then verses 17 through 21, Paul says, let's look to the future. And he's like, we're aliens here. And he says, I have a new look or I have a new vision as he looks forward. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see Paul's past and Paul's presence and Paul's future and go, okay, how does all this help us to have what Paul refers to, I think, as a spiritual mind? See, Paul takes us from having this single mind, this submissive mind, and each chapter, I think, kind of dives us a little deeper and puts a little bit more press on us to be a little bit stronger in our walk with Christ. Philippians 3, 18 and 19 Paul writes and says, for, I, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. 
He just described the believer who has a worldly mind. Well, how do you know he described the believer? Who's this letter written to? It's written to believers, to Christians in Philippi. And so he's telling them, listen, you're thinking about all the stuff of the world and all the stuff of the world's leading to destruction. And then in verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 20, Paul flips and describes what's known as the spiritual mind. They have their mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. See, Philippi was actually a Roman colony. It was a Rome away from Rome. It wasn't literally located in Rome. It'd be like taking, um, say, 50,000 people here from Lexington and saying, hey, let's just move on down the road a few hundred miles and let's start another group or another city or another colony. And so that's what they were. They just kind of moved on down the road, and so they're a Roman colony. And in the same sense, the people of God are a colony of heaven here on earth. We live here on earth. Paul says our citizenship is where? In heaven. Our so this is a temporary place that we stay. This is a spiritual mind. It's so easy to get wrapped up in the things of this world. Get wrapped up in my house, get wrapped up in my cars, my hobbies, my money, my stuff, the tangible. So many times we live for that stuff and we think, man, this stuff is all about me. How do you know if it has control of your mind? By the way you respond to it. My daughter had a car accident a couple weeks ago. Not her fault, thank goodness, we found out. But she had just bought the car. And it has brand new license. It doesn't even have its brand new license, but it still has a temporary tag. That was a test in the Bolton home about stuff. And i got to admit to you, and my daughter's sitting here today, I won't point her out, you know who she is, you can go talk to her. My wife and I didn't exactly respond to stuff so, so kindly right at the beginning, and had to apologize the next day. But stuff, how we respond to stuff knows, am I walking in a spiritual mind or am I walking in a worldly mind? What, what about the intangible, the reputation, the fame, the achievement? When all that's stripped away, what does it mean? See, Paul wrote about these things, things that were gained, things that were behind, and things that are before. In Paul's case, some of these things were intangible. A feeling of self-satisfaction, morality, religious achievement. Some of those, you just can't even put a measuring stick. See, we can be snared by both tangible and intangible things. And the result of that is a loss of joy and a very slow death. I use the word snare because in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, there's a warning about a snare. And the snare in the, in the Old Testament book of Proverbs is talking about a bear that gets caught in a trap. It's snared in the woods. And so there's a big claw that closes down on that, that bear's foot, and it does not die immediately. It's a very slow, torturous death that just little by little by little, it loses its life. But when we let tangible and intangible things take over, it's like us being caught like the bear in the woods. We're dying a slow, painful death, and we don't even realize it as joy is sat from us. Paul's like, listen, this stuff can destroy your life. See, the challenge is we have to learn how do we balance our walk with God with things of this life? Because the truth is, we have things. And we will have things on this earth 
until the day we go to heaven. In the book of Genesis, God made a bunch of things. And he said, they're good. They're good. In Matthew 6, we see that God knows we need certain things in order to even live. And 1 Timothy 6, 17 says that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. So what's the balance between enjoying them but then letting them take over where they start to take our joy? But in Luke 12, Jesus warned us that our lives do not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. And so there's this fine balance as you walk through Scripture between we have stuff, God blesses us with stuff, but stuff can't control us and and we can't live in that stuff and let that stuff dictate who we are and steal our life and steal our joy because it will destroy our lives. See, quantity is no assurance of quality. But many people who have the things money can buy have lost the things that money cannot buy. Did you hear what I just said? We, we tend to chase after things because that's what the world teaches. And we live as visitors in this world, and so a lot of it rubs off on us, and we think, well, when I have this stuff, it's going to bring joy. But many of these things that we lost cannot buy the joy that we desire. The, first, the key word in the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3 is the word count. In the original language, two different words are used, but the basic idea is the same, to evaluate or to assess. That's what you do when you count. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I want to ask you today to do a little bit of examining of your life. I want you to do some counting. See, few few people sit down and weigh seriously the values that control their decisions and their directions. Most of us are just taught you have some money, spend it. You want some stuff, go get it. Take care of yourself. Be happy. And what's going to make you happy? Have more stuff. Many people today are the slaves of their things, and the result is they do not experience real Christian joy because stuff of life is just wearing us out. In Paul's case, the things he was living for before he knew Christ seemed to be very commendable. Paul was living for a righteous life. He was living to be obedient to the law. He he, he had the defense of the religious of his fathers. Not one of these things satisfied him or gave him acceptance with God. And just like most religious people today, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him to heaven. See, it was not the bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus. It was actually the good things. He had, those, he had to lose his religion to find salvation. And if all things, I hope we, the church, would just drop the word religion. Religion is just man's ways of trying to get close to God. One day Saul of Tarsus met Jesus Christ, and on a day his values changed. He discovered that apart from Jesus Christ, everything he lived for was worthless. In our text for this week, he explains there's only two kinds of righteousness. There's works righteousness and there's faith righteousness. And only faith righteousness is acceptable to God. Paul had the spiritual mind. He looked at things of this earth from heaven's viewpoint. People who live for things are never really happy because they constantly protect their treasures and worry about their value. And if you you've had a boat, you've had a car, you've had a house, you've had a bike, you've, you know everything breaks down. Everything falls apart. The believer with a spiritual mind 
his or her treasures, they're in Christ, can never be stolen, and they never lose their value. And so as we go through Philippians 3, Paul's like driving us, like, let go of the junk of this life. Let's consider these two kinds of righteousness today. The first one is a works righteousness. Look at Philippians 3, the verse 3 verses, as Paul brings out this great exhortation. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul uses some pretty strong language here. He comes out and he's like, here's a warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the workers of evil. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. What is he talking about? And why would someone who's an apostle, who's so close to Christ, call someone dogs or workers of evil or mutilators of the flesh? Well, the Orthodox Jew would call the Gentile a dog. But here Paul calls the Orthodox Jew a dog. Paul was not just using a name. He's comparing these people to false teachers, to the dirty scavengers, who are so against decent people. And like those dogs, the Judaizers snapped at Paul's heels and they were following him around from place to place and they were barking out their false doctrines. And so he's like, you hear these people barking in the background? They're behaving just like dogs. They were troublemakers and they carried a dangerous infection just like a wild, rabid dog. He's like, you gotta watch out for those kinds of people. He says, you gotta watch out for evil workers. These men taught that the sinner was saved by faith plus good works, especially the works of the Jewish law. Paul stated that their good works are evil works because they're performed by the flesh and not by the Spirit, and they glorify the workers, and they don't glorify Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians 2 and in Titus 3, he makes it clear that we're not saved by our good works, but we're saved by faith. A Christian's good works should be the result of our faith not to earn our faith or to earn our way. And Paul's like, you got to watch out because these people who are telling you, yes, you can believe, but also add on. He's like, they're evil workers. They're, they're not true, teaching a true gospel. And then he says, you got to look out for mutilators. Here Paul used a pun on the word circumcision. The word translated circumcision literally means a mutilation. And the Judaizers taught that circumcision was essential to salvation. But Paul says that circumcision is just a mutilation. His point is that the true Christian has experienced a spiritual circumcision in Christ and does not need any fleshly operations. Now, moms and dads, you have an assignment. If you have kids in here, you can explain circumcision further from this point. At the end of verse 3, Paul gives a very quick contrast and describes the true Christian. He says the true Christian worships God in spirit. They don't depend upon their good works, which are only of the flesh. He says a true Christian boasts in Jesus Christ. People who depend upon their religion are usually boasting about what they have done. Look at me, look how good I am. But he's saying true Christians, they don't boast about anything. The only thing they boast about is who? About Jesus. He says, true Christians have no confidence in the flesh. Popular religious philosophy today is the Lord helps those who help themselves. That's hogwash. That's a lie from Satan. This was popular in Paul's day as well. It was wrong then and it's wrong now. The Bible has nothing good to say about flesh, and yet most people today 
depend entirely on what they do to please God. You know, in the book of Isaiah, it tells us that our goodness is just like filthy rags. So you can line up all the goodness you want. Man, look how good I am. I go to church, and I go to Bible study, and I take care of people, and I give them my money, and I'm kind to the preacher, and, and, and just all this great stuff. And God's like, that's just like some dirty, filthy rags. Dirty, filthy. Again, moms and dads, that's another text to study, and you can share that with your kids because it's filthy, dirty rags. Our flesh corrupts God's way on earth. It profits nothing as far as our spiritual life is concerned. We should put no confidence at all in the flesh. And then it's really interesting because Paul's like, okay, I've just shared with you about these dogs, these mutilators. I just share with you this contrast of what a true Christian is. He says, now let me give you an example. Let me show you an example. Paul was not speaking from an ivory tower because he personally knew the futility of trying to save, uh, attain salvation by good works. As a young student, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great rabbi, the Jewish rabbi. He sat at his feet and he learned. His career as a Jewish religious leader was promising, and he gave it all up to become a hated member of the Christian sect and a preacher of the gospel. Look what he writes as, as his example. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on a law, faultless. I mean, he examines his own life here, and he holds out his life as an example and Paul makes some comparisons, Paul's relationship to the nation. He's like, I was born a pure Hebrew family and entered a covenant relationship when I was circumcised. He's pointing all that out. He's like, the Judaizers would understand Paul's reference to the tribe of Benjamin because Benjamin and Joseph were Jacob's favorite sons. They were born to Rachel, Jacob's wife, Israel's first king, and from Benjamin and his tribe was faithful to David during the rebellion of Absalom. Paul's human heritage was something to be proud of. And Paul's saying, look it, this is my heritage. If anybody has a reason to brag or boast, it's me. Paul goes on, he's like, also my relationship to the law. As for the law, a Pharisee, a righteousness that comes from keeping the law and being blameless. To the Jews of Paul's day, a Pharisee had reached the summit of religious experience. The highest ideal a Jew could ever hope to attain. He's like, look it. I have achieved what you want to achieve. If anybody is going to heaven, it was the Pharisee. He held to orthodox doctrine and tried to fulfill the religious duties faithfully. He's like, I stick to all that. And today, we are used to the word Pharisee being the same as a hypocrite. In Paul's time, that wasn't true. To be a Pharisee was a good thing. It measured by the righteousness of the law. So Paul was blameless. Here's all the rules. Paul's like, I kept them all. I don't break any of them. He kept all the traditions perfectly. Paul's relationship to Israel and his enemies, Paul brings that out. He says, it's not enough to believe the truth. A man must also oppose the lies. And so Paul defended the Orthodox faith by persecuting Christians, the followers of what was known at the time as a deceiver. And Paul's like, listen, not only did I keep the law, not only did I have this great relationship to the nation, I stood up and fought for that right of Jews. Let attack against the church. 
Every Jew could boast of his own blood heritage of how they put their life on the line. Some Jews could boast of their faithfulness to the Jewish religion, but Paul could boast those things plus his zeal in persecuting the church. So when you look at Paul's life before Christ, you might ask, how could a sincere man like Saul of Tarsus be so wrong? How could he be so wrong? He's doing all these things that are right according to the Jewish law. He was using the wrong measuring stick. What measuring stick have you been using lately? To look at your own righteousness. See, like the rich young ruler and the Pharisee in Christ's parable, Saul of Tarsal was looking at the outside and not the inside. What do we tend to do? We tend to look at the outside. Why? Because we really don't know people's hearts. Sometimes it drives me crazy when people say, well, I, I know your heart. No, not really. Scripture actually tells us the heart is deceiver, and the heart will even lie to us. And so we really don't know each other's hearts because we're looking at the outside to try to measure our heart. He was comparing himself with standards set by men, not standards set by God. As far as obeying outwardly the demands of law was concerned, Paul was a great success. He would have been the model to hold up, but he did not stop to consider the inward sins that he was committing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it clear that there are sinful attitudes and appetites and sinful actions. But Paul wasn't looking at that stuff. He was looking at all his outside actions. My whole list over here, the law, man, he's just checking them off. I did good, I did good, I did good, I did good, I did good. When he looked at himself, or when he looked at others, Saul of Tarsus considered himself to be righteous. And then what, day, what happens? One day he sees himself compared to Jesus Christ. It was then that he... His life was changed. It was then that the evaluation started to happen. It was then that he abandoned works of righteousness for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He came to understand to live a righteousness of faith. You know, even in our society today, this whole works of righteousness is so taught. Be good, do right, go to church, do all this right stuff. Paul says, no, you got to live by a faith righteousness. See, when Paul met Jesus Christ on a Damascus road, he trusted him and became a child of God. It was an instantaneous miracle of the grace of God. When Paul at Saul meets Christ on that Damascus road, the kind that, that just take, took place where he dramatically changed his life. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Wait a minute, I'm living according to all the Jewish laws. I'm doing fine. No, you're persecuting me. And his life has changed in an instant. The kind that still can take place today. A dramatic change whenever sinners will admit their need of a Savior and they say, I want to walk by faith in Jesus Christ and quit just trying to be good and quit just trying to do right. I'm done with that game. I'm going to walk in faith. So when Paul met Christ, he realized how futile were his good works and how sinful were his claims of righteousness. A wonderful transaction took place. Paul lost some things, and he gained much more. Philippians 3, 7, Paul goes on and says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider all these things I've gained. He lost whatever gained to him personally apart from God. Paul had a great reputation as a scholar, and a leader. He was proud of his Jewish heritage and his religious achievements. All these things that were valuable to him, 
He could profit from them. He had many friends who admired his zeal and how he fought against the Christians. But he measured these treasures against what Jesus had to offer. And he realized that everything he held dear to him, everything of importance, was nothing but trash compared to what Christ was going to do for him. His own treasures brought glory to him personally, but they did not bring glory to God. They were gained to him only as was his selfishness. It doesn't mean that Paul repudiated his rich heritage as an Orthodox Jew. As you read his letters and you follow his ministry in the book of Acts, you see how he valued both the Jewish blood and the Roman citizenship. Becoming a Christian did not make him less a Jew. It made him a completed Jew, a true child of Abraham, both spiritually and physically. He did not lower his standard of morality because he saw a shallowness of a pharisaical religion. He accepted a higher standard of living a conformity to live like Jesus Christ. So he started to look at the life of Christ and say, I'm going to model my life after Christ, not following all the ways of the law. And then Paul goes on in verse 8, on and talk about his gains. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith. Through faith in what? In Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, by surrendering to Christ, I gain so much more. Have you thought about the gains of your walk in Christ? Have you taken time to ponder Man, when I became a Christian, this is what I gain and this is what I have. This is what I hold on to. And if you haven't accepted Christ, I'm going to just kind of point out to you a few things that Paul is sharing we've gained. A reminder to the church, but if you haven't accepted Christ, you go, maybe that's something I want. Paul's gains, he says, the knowledge of Christ. It means so much more than knowledge. See, Paul already had a knowledge about Christ because of his historical information. To know Christ means you have a personal relationship through faith. Paul's like, I've gained this knowledge. I've gained a relationship. And you and I, you know, we know a lot of people. And we know about people who lived centuries ago, but we personally know very few. Personally, are not in relationship with many. And Christianity is Christ, and salvation is knowing Him in a personal way. And Paul says, that's a great gain when you know Jesus in a very personal way as your Savior. And that's a relationship that's worth giving up everything else and losing everything else. Paul says, i, I got to remember that. I'm not going to forget it. Paul says, you also gain the righteousness of Christ. See, righteousness was actually the great goal of Paul's life when he was a Pharisee. It was a self-righteousness, a works righteousness that he knew he could never attain. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up probably with that kind of works righteousness. 
Because I was taught, you're in church every Sunday, you're in church every Sunday night, you're in Wednesday night group, you're in youth group, you're at the church every time the doors open, you got to memorize these Bible verses, you get rewards for that, you get rewards for this, and it was always, you got to be there when the doors open, and then if you're going to be good, then you're not going to smoke, you're not going to chew, you're not going to cuss, you're not going to drink, you're not going to do this, and it was almost like I had this list on a big old blackboard that God kept up there for me, and had my name up there, and he'd write my good, and he'd write my bad, and it was almost like, I got to do enough good to make sure the bad gets washed away. In today's world, God's probably sent through an iPhone, right? He's got it all checked for us. But that's our mindset many times. That's our thinking because that's what we've been taught and we start to learn and live under this versus I've come to know Jesus Christ so much and, and He has made me clean. And because of my righteousness, because of my faith, I want to be in church. I want to be in Bible study. I want to serve. I want to do things for others because Christ has done things for me. It's a whole different mind shift. And I don't know how old I was when that started to connect. And went, wow, there's a lot of weight lifted off my shoulders. Too many, too many Christians live today under you have to do in order to be loved. There's weight lifted off your shoulders. See, when Paul trusted Christ, he loses that old old self-righteousness. And he gains the righteousness of Christ. The technical word for this is called imputation. It means to put on one's account. So Paul looked at his own record and realized he was spiritually bankrupt. And look at Christ's record and saw he was perfect. And when Paul trusted Christ, he saw God put Christ's righteousness onto his own account. And more than that, then Paul discovered that all his sins had been put on Christ's account on the cross. And God promised that Paul would never hold, have his sins held against him any longer because God took and put the sins on Jesus Christ. That's imputation. Well, let me explain it this way to you. If you open up your Bible, or not your Bible app, your, your, your banking app, and let's say you pull out your phone right now and you open it up and you looked at your checking account and you went, well, I've got about 100 bucks there for the week. How am I going to make it through? And you're like, I don't know. I'm going to do it. The paycheck doesn't come to Friday. If I spend this 100 bucks, I'm empty. I'm gone. It's done. I'm bankrupt in that checking account and there's nowhere else to go. Bad news, right? Okay, you all got masks on. You got to help me out. Come on. Bad news, right? Yeah, that'd be really bad news, especially if the house payment was coming or the car payment was coming, you only have $100. But what if the preacher was kind to you and I took about $3,000 out of my account and put it into your account? Ah, there you go. I don't have $3,000 to do that in my account. That would be me imputing to you grace by giving you money so you can pay your bills so you're not bankrupt. That's what God did for us. And Paul says, that's the righteousness of Christ. I was bankrupt. I was destined for hell. All my sins are against me. And God saw my bankruptness and he said, here, Christ, boom, he's taking it all for you. And you're no longer bankrupt. You're now rich. You are rich. And Paul says, how beautiful is that? And Paul discovered his sins were done away with. That's a fantastic experience of God's grace. I mean, just stop and think on that with me for a moment. That's who we are in the church. So when people are putting pressure on you in order to be right with God, you got to do A, B, C, D, and E. You can just look at them and say, stop! I'll do that as God leads me to do that. And I'm not saved by doing all that craziness. Because Christ imputed, just say that word with me, imputed. 
imputed. You just learn a big doctrinal word. You know, I, I don't care about all the doctrinal words, but that's a good word. He's imputed to you a wholeness. He just, he just sets you free. There's one other area Paul addresses as a great gain, and it's the fellowship of Christ. When he became a Christian, it was not the end for Paul, but the beginning. His experience with Christ was so tremendous that it transformed his life. This experience continued for years to follow. It was a personal experience. And Paul walked with Christ. He prayed to Christ. He obeyed His will. And he sought glory in His name. And when he was living under the law, Paul was set and lost in the rules. Now he had a friend. Now he had a master now you had a constant companion, someone who's with him. It was such a powerful experience as the resurrection of the power of Christ went to work in Paul's life. And Paul said, Christ lives in me. The fellowship with Christ changed him. And that's how he could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because of the relationship. <coughs> Paul knew. It was a painful experience, he said, that fellowship of his sufferings. Paul knew the privilege to suffer for Christ. In fact, suffering had been part of his experience from the very beginning. And as we grow in our knowledge of Christ and our experience of his power, we come under the attack of the enemy. Paul had been a persecutor at one time, but he learned what it means to be persecuted. But he says, listen, all of it was worth it. Walking with Christ was a practical experience. Paul lived for Christ because he died to self. He took up his cross daily and he followed him. The result of his death was a spiritual resurrection that caused Paul to walk in a new life. And he says, this fellowship with Christ, this relationship with Christ, this closeness with Christ, I've gained so much more than I've ever lost. It's like when I let it all go, I've gained so much. The gains were so thrilling that Paul considered all things nothing but garbage in comparison. So when you walk in your house today, I want you to walk in your house and say, this house is a piece of garbage. You get in your car in your parking lot, man, this car is a piece of garbage. I hope it keeps driving this week, but it's a piece of garbage. You go to your job tomorrow, man, this job's a piece of garbage. Why? It is garbage compared to Christ. It's garbage compared to our relationship in Christ. And no wonder he had joy because his life did not depend upon these cheap things of the world, but on the eternal values that are found in Christ. Paul had the spiritual mind. He looked at things from heaven's viewpoint. He's like, my home is heaven, so I'm going to look at this world now from heaven's viewpoint and not from a worldly viewpoint. See, people who live for things are never happy because they're constantly protecting their treasure, worrying about them losing their value. You know another good example of that? You have money in the stock market this year. What did you do back in March when the pandemic started hitting and you watch the stock market and go, were you freaking out? Oh, no, my investments. Oh, no, my retirement. Oh, what's going to happen? You all know you do that. <clears throat> I do it sometimes. I was trying not to worry. I put a little number in my computer, and that's where it's at. It goes down. Let's see how low it goes. Whoa, it went pretty low. Okay, God, thank you, I'm 47. I wasn't freaking out, though. If you're freaking out over that, then you're, you, you, you may be chasing after the things of this world. Versus going, I'm going to trust God. This stock market may crash so bad, my bank account becomes empty. But I know God's got me in his hand. He'll take care of me when I'm 50, 60, 70, no matter. He'll guide me. See, with the believer, the spiritual mind, his treasures in Christ so they can never be stolen and they, they never lose their value. Did you hear what he said? 
the believer with the spiritual mind, their treasures are in Christ. And so the values can never be stolen. They can never lose their value. Maybe now is a good time for all of us to become accountants. As Paul says, I count. And spend some time evaluating the things that matter to you most.